0: still speaks to us through the sacraments as we have seen them and participated in them. This morning, I invite you to open Scripture to the book of Acts, chapter 22. We'll be reading from verse 30 all the way to chapter 23, uh, verse 35. As you are turning there, um, I want to remind you that uh, this passage is on page number 932 in our Pew Bibles. And as um, as you find your way there, I want to remind you also that we are currently going through the book of Acts in our sermon series. Um, Through this book, we are closely approaching the end part of this book. It's been a beautiful and great journey over the last year or so to go through this book and pray that the Lord continues to bless our hearts, strengthen us, challenge us, equip us through this last section of the book of Acts. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience, up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. But then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by Said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul received that one part were when when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees of the Pharisee party stood up and condemned, contended sharply. so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, Give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you are going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. All called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink, till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready. 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews And was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once. Ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. On the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in the Herod's praetorium. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts. Oh, Father, we pray that you would speak to us from your word, May you speak to our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit. We rely on him. We rely on his presence among us. We rely on the wisdom you have given to us through your scriptures and through your spirit. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, friends, in uh, this passage, we, uh, we see that Paul's second defense uh, before a, a very angry crowd in Jerusalem. We also see the way the Lord took Paul out of Jerusalem and got him closer to another destination. In uh, Jerusalem, the hostility against Paul um, increased. As a matter of fact, in this chapter, it will become evident that nothing lawfully charged against Paul was able to surface. And the only means, the only way to try to get Paul out of the picture to kill him, was by deceptively coming up with a plan and, uh, and violently seeking to, uh, to kill him. So uh, the, Paul, the, the plan to kill Paul comes not through a, a fair trial, but through the use of deception, through the use of violent zeal, and through the, through the help of, uh, of the Jewish priests and the council. Yet in the midst of such hostility, We see two points that seem to arise out of this this increasing, this increasing hostility. We see Paul's faithfulness on one side. We see Paul's faithfulness and then we also see God's provision in the midst of this hostility. Friends, let me ask you, when things get hard, how do we typically respond, especially in regards to God? When things get hard, How do we people, how do God's people respond in regards to God when things get tough? There's a number of ways. I wonder, do we start wondering and doubting whether or not God is with us? Do we wonder why God is allowing such things to happen? He who is on the throne and in control of all things, why is He allowing such things? Do we consider or reconsider our commitment to God? or our involvement with the things of God. It's not unusual that sometimes people, when it gets tough, they distance themselves from God. They actually think about taking a break. Taking a break from church, taking a a break from, from reading God's Word, taking a break from praying, taking a break from really pursuing God. They actually think about, you know, I, I need a I need distance. I need, to, I need to reflect on what all this means and sort of regroup myself. And that regrouping takes shape, the shape of a distance from God and His people. Unfortunately, these are fleshly, natural ways in which people oftentimes respond to God when things get tough. Well, Paul increase, experienced increasing hostility in Jerusalem but what did he do? What did he do? He sought not simply to protect his life, but he sought to protect the gospel by continuing to proclaim Christ faithfully. Let's look at, uh, at the second defense that Paul gives in this book. It's, uh, it's his, actually his last speech in Jerusalem. And as we look at this, let's, let's consider Paul's faithfulness as he Speaks for the last time to an angry and increasingly hostile Jewish mob in Jerusalem. We are told in uh, verse 20, uh, in chapter 22, verse 30, that the Roman tribune wanted to know more exactly the reason why Paul was accused by by the Jews. So we read that on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, uh, the Tribune unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet him, and he brought Paul down and set him before this council. Compared to all the speeches of defense um, that Paul gives in the book of Acts, this is the shortest, and this is the last in Jerusalem. And Paul begins this uh, speech by summarizing his life. Look at chapter 23, verse 1. He says, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Friends, why did Paul start in this way? And what was it about this very first sentence that causes such a reaction on the side of the the council that the the, the members of the council or, or the chief priest actually orders for Paul to be struck on the mouth? I mean, something went, went wrong about this very first introductory statement. What was wrong with it? Well, on one side, Paul is declaring his own assessment of his life, that he's, he has lived his life faithfully to God. It's as if Paul is saying that he lived his life aware that God sees or saw him in everything he has done. It's a beautiful thing to be able to say, that you live life in the sight of God. It, it really is. It's a, it's a big deal. It's a big deal to say that you live life aware that God is seeing you in everything you do. But not only that, Paul said something further. He, um, he said that he has lived such a life before God in all good conscience. Now, conscience is a great tool that provides us with internal accountability. If we have a good conscience, it will provoke us when we do wrong. If we don't have a good conscience, it will not provoke us when we do wrong. But friends, be careful with conscience because conscience by itself is not an absolute standard. People can be misinformed about what is right or wrong, especially in the sight of God. And they can do the wrong thing without their conscience bothering them. Prior to his own conversion, remember what Paul was doing prior to his own conversion. He was acting in good conscience. He thought he's serving God, and he was very zealous in doing that. When in reality, he was acting against Christ. How did how how was that possible? And he he still acted in good conscience but his conscience was misinformed. I love what one commentator says, conscience can be wrongly informed and needs to be educated by divine revelation in order to be a reliable check on our behavior. Friends, it's not simply whether or not our conscience bothers us, but whether or not our conscience is informed by God's word and cleansed by his spirit so that we can live a life. Of faithfulness to God, a life that is lived in awareness of God's sight over us. By using this introductory statement on his life, uh, the Apostle Paul says that his life was an expression of faithfulness to God. But there's something wrong about this that really, really bothered these Jewish priests. You know, it was. Uh, it was a phrase that Paul used at the very last part of that statement, up to this day. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, every Jew would like every other Jew to live a life before God in good conscience. That, that was not the problem. I was desirous for every good Jew. The problem was that Paul said that, that he did it up to this day. You see, they would not have a problem if Paul had said, I have done that in my former life while I was persecuting the Christians. They would have agreed with that. They would have loved that. They would have said amen to that. Paul says, up to this day. In other words, Paul is saying that as a follower of Christ, that as a committed worshiper of Christ, He's actually living a life of faithfulness before God. And the Jewish council, the priests, could not accept that. That's why it was hard for them to hear that Paul's new life as a follower of Christ was actually an expression of faithfulness to God. That's why as soon as they hear his words come out of his mouth, they order him to be stricken on the mouth. So Luke emphasizes for us the Jewish tension in Jerusalem these Jewish leaders could not accept that being a follower of Christ and living life in the sight of God as a follower of Christ was an expression of faithfulness to God. Friends, how many today, how many today are happy to live and claim to live a spiritual life as long as it does not involve a commitment to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? How many are are, are happy to say, You know, I live a a life trying to please this higher being, whoever he may be. As long as it doesn't involve a commitment and a specific worship of Christ. Paul is able to say this, that in good conscience, as a follower of Christ, he's able to live life inside of God up to this present moment. Could you say that? Could you say that? about your life. Now, Paul's reaction is surprising. When he's struck on the cheek, and I have to tell you, I'm surprised as well about, by this reaction of Paul. You know, Paul is not turning the other cheek at this time. Was it, because, uh, was it because the instructions have not yet been written and he didn't know about the Lord's instruction on this particular issue? I don't know. I really don't know. Um, not only is he not turning the other cheek, he is actually um, responding back with what comes across to us as, as, as verbal abuse. I mean, and I think about his response. Please don't do this at home. Don't do this when, when somebody else does this to you. Um, but, so there's a puzzle uh, in, in the way Paul responds here. But look at verse 3 the way Paul responds to being stricken on the, on the mouth. He says, God is going to strike you you whitewashed wall who and then paul goes on and says are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law you order to be st- me to be struck but friends paul is paul losing his temper here might look like that but i think something else is going on as well this um this is not so much verbal abuse in return for physical abuse. The expression whitewashed wall comes from the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel used it to prove something which looked stable enough but was about to collapse. It looked stable because it had a fresh layer of paint, it, it looked newly painted. But yet, it was rotten inside, and the wall was about to collapse. It was a very harsh and strong picture of confronting hypocrisy. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself used this picture uh, to describe the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders in Matthew 23. Jesus used this picture to portray the hypocrisy of, of the Jewish teachers in respect to the Mosaic law. Paul here is not simply losing his temper. He's actually courageously and prophetically showing the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders in the way they treated him. If we look further in Acts, we see how these Jewish leaders will seek to confront Paul. They do it not by lawfully trying him. No, they use every deceptive way to try to to kill him. There's nothing lawful about the way these, these leaders are responding to Paul's and to, to, act, to accusing him. As a matter of fact, Luke wants to emphasize that the Romans do a better job of, of trying him lawfully than these Jewish leaders. How ironic that the Romans actually take more care in administering justice. Than the leaders of God's people. How sad. How sad. So when Paul is informed that he spoke these harsh words against the high priest, notice how Paul reacts in verse 5. He seems to be apologizing. I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now this particular command comes from the book of Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, when when God wrote in His law, "Do not utter blasphemies against God, or curse the ruler of your people." You know what? Do you see what Paul's doing here when he realizes that he actually spoke those harsh words, those prophetic words to the very high priest, he actually realizes, "Oh my, I, I, should, have, I should have not done that, because he, he's the ruler of God's people, and actually Scripture forbids me to do that. You see how Paul here, in, even in this apologetic tone, he's actually realizing and wanting to, to take a step back in light of Scripture. In, in, this, in this attitude of apology, Paul shows that he's ready and willing to submit to the teaching of Scripture, even when he's faced with the hypocrisy of Israel's leaders. Paul seems to regret that he spoke those words to the high priest, not because he did not deserve those words, because he did. He did deserve those words, but Paul regrets it because his conscience reminded him of what the law of God required. The point of all this is to show that Paul shows a desire to live faithfully to God, even while facing the hypocrisy of the chief priests. Their hypocrisy does not give Paul an excuse to act against Scripture. Do you see see that? Sometimes it's so easy for us to, to act harshly, even against, against God's word or not in conformity to God's word when we see hypocrisy in someone else. Paul is an example for us is of actually trying to constrain himself to God's ways. That's why Paul lived a life faithful to God, both in hostility, also in facing hypocrisy. Starting in verse 6, Paul turns the focus of the conversation to the reason why he is accused. Look at verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part of the Sadducees and the other uh, were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, if this was all we had about Paul's defense in the book of Acts, we might conclude that uh, this is a very... Very wise political move in the way Paul is able to manipulate the audience and uh, divide and conquer and, uh, and get himself out of trouble by po- pointing the tensions that exist between themselves. But this is not the only verse that tells us what Paul used to, deve- to, deve- uh, to defend himself. As a matter of fact, this is not a political move. This is not a shrewd way of trying to get himself out of trouble, Paul is actually appealing to the resurrection of the dead several times in the book of Acts later, even when, uh, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not divided among them in, in the crowd before him. So this is not a shrewd move. Uh, it's true that the Sadducees, and Paul perceives this, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They only took as authoritative the Old Testament Pentateuch, and in the Pentateuch, it was not as clear that the resurrection uh, was taught. So they did not believe in the resurrection. As a matter of fact, one of the Jewish historians um, by the name of Josephus tells us that the, uh, the Sadducees uh, hold that the soul perishes along with the body. So after you die, nothing else remains. Your spirit can, dies with you. There's no resurrection. After you die, this is it. The Sadducees were like like the liberals today. You know, the theological liberals. You know, they don't believe uh, the fullness of Scripture. They don't, they don't believe everything that is in the Old Testament. Um, so Paul perceives that he's facing a crowd that had some solid theological liberals and then the Pharisees. They were the, the, the over conservatives, right? The, the ones who were very legalistic in everything they did. But before Paul wants to preach Christ, he must deal with this hope of the resurrection. If the resurrection of the dead doesn't happen, if you have a crowd of people who actually don't believe that the resurrection of the dead would actually happen, then the message about Jesus makes no sense. Then the hope of the gospel, which Jesus ushered, stops with death. So Paul, what he's doing here, he's actually addressing one of the foundational truths that stays beneath the gospel message, the reality that there will be a day of resurrection. Paul repeats this emphasis of the message of the resurrection at the end of the age. Later in Acts 24, in the next chapter, Paul speaks to Felix, and he says, It is in respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. And this resurrection message of the end of the age, comes again in chapter 26 and a few other places. You see, friends, for Paul, the belief in the resurrection was not just a manipulative hand. It was a central foundation for his message about Jesus. Friends, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then what we do with this life ends here. But if there is a resurrection of the dead, if we will have new bodies, we will no longer be threatened by death If that is true, then it's imperative that we prepare for that resurrection day. Otherwise, we will spend eternity in everlasting, unending, undying torment. Paul defended his gospel message by speaking the resurrection of the dead. Do you think much about the resurrection of the dead? Are you prepared for it? Yesterday, I, I... I was speaking to the, to the hair stylist who gave me a haircut, and she told me that she was Buddhist. And uh, I said, do you know there will be a resurrection from the dead? Are you prepared for it? There's some great gospel conversations that you can get into by just asking this very basic question. Do you know that there will be a resurrection from the dead? And are you prepared for it? That's what Paul is doing here. He's perceiving that in this crowd, there are people who don't believe that. So he's addressing that very question. And yet, in God's, in God's uh, providence and uh, mercy, it's that question that actually creates a vision uh, between the crowd, between the Jews and the, uh, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, there's violence that's, that's starting to escalate between them, and uh, the Roman tribune uh, pulls him out of it. And he get, Paul gets rescued from their. From their hostility. Paul remains faithful to speaking about Christ in the midst of that hostility. But there's a a second thing that we see here in this passage. Not just Paul's faithfulness. We actually also see the Lord's provision. The Lord's provision. Look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Do you see what the Lord is doing here? What a contrast. What a contrast with the, the treatment between what the, Lord, the, the way the Lord treats Paul and the way the Jews treated Paul that day. When Paul began speaking to them, the Jewish leaders stroke him on the mouth. Now the Lord encourages him by affirming that what Paul testified about Christ was accepted by the Lord. What an encouragement and assurance It was for Paul to hear, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify elsewhere. Rather than being slapped on the mouth, Paul is reassured that the Lord has accepted his testimony and is promoting him, sending him elsewhere to a new frontier, and that elsewhere is where? Rome. Rome. Friend, the Lord provides Paul with a new mission field. That's what the Lord provides. Paul is faithful. The Lord provides a new task. By the way, friends, just an FYI, just to know, you know how, how the Lord rewards those who are faithful in serving him? More work, more service. Now take that as an encouragement, not as a way to discourage you to be faithful in what you do. More work. The Lord provides encouragement and a new mission field. But notice the details. This is amazing. Lord, you are telling me that I need to go to Rome, but I'm bound. Lord, you are telling me that I was faithful and now you're 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 promoting me to the next frontier. But I'm in chain. I'm in prison. Notice who's opening this door of evangelism for Paul. Now, Paul himself desired to go to Rome way back when he wrote the the, the letter to the Romans. While he was traveling towards Jerusalem, as a matter of fact, most likely was in Corinth. When he he went on the last journey to Jerusalem, he wrote the letter of, of Romans, and he said there that he must, um, that he longs to be. see the believers in Rome. Paul desired to go to Rome, but now he's in chains. Who opened this door for the new frontier for Paul? Was it Paul? No. It was the Lord. It was God. He can no longer speak freely about Jesus, and yet, even bound up, even as a prisoner, the Lord is opening up a door for gospel ministry for Paul. Paul, must also testify in Rome. Friend, if God opened gospel opportunities for a chained apostle, God is able to open gospel opportunities for believers who live freely. But do we desire, do we have a desire for gospel opportunities? Do we, are we eager for gospel opportunities? Are you praying for gospel opportunities just as Paul prayed about them when he was free? Oh, friends, I'm encouraged that it is God who opens gospel opportunities even, even when his messengers are bound up. I'm encouraged by that. If God can do that with people in prison, what can he do with people who are free if they would actually desire and be eager to have gospel opportunities. But then there's a second provision the Lord provides Paul, not just, um, not just a new frontier, not just a new task. The Lord provides a reminder to Paul of his own presence. Notice it wasn't just an angel that the Lord sent to Paul when, uh, when assigning him this new mission. Remember in Macedonia, Paul saw a vision of a man who called him, come over in Macedonia. Now. It's not an angel or just some sort of random figure that shows up in in Paul, in Paul's vision. We are told that the Lord stood by him. What an encouragement to know and to be reminded by the Lord's presence with him. Now, I'm sure Paul knew that the Lord was with him. But this was a reminder in a very physical way that the Lord stood by Paul. No longer just a vision of Paul. Remember, the first time the, Lord, the Paul saw the Lord, it was a vision that blinded him on the road to Damascus. Now, the Lord stands by him, encourages him, assures him, and gives him this new task and reminds him that he is with Paul. Friends, it is better to be in chains with the Lord besides you than to be a free man without the Lord. It's better to be with the Lord in chains than to be free without the Lord. Jesus himself told the disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. There's more encouragement in being in chains with the Lord than being living freely apart from the Lord, if we only would seek the Lord and His presence and His guidance continuously. And friends, as a congregation, we should not assume that God is with us automatically. We should not assume that God is with us automatically, even as a church. Why would I say that? Well, think about the church in, in, in a Revelation, the, the church in Laodicea. Remember, where was the Lord when He addressed the church in Laodicea? He was at the door. Remember? But on which side of the door was the Lord? He was on the outside. And he was knocking and calling to come in. Let's not take the Lord's presence as some sort of an automatic assurance. We should, as a congregation, seek the Lord. Seek His presence continuously. Desire to be in step with His ways in everything we do. We should be zealous for the presence of the Lord. Friends, it is better to be in a prison cell with the presence of the Lord than in a comfortable place where we become complacent and comfortable in our own resources as it happened to the church in Laodicea, and yet with the Lord on the outside. The Lord also gave Paul protection. It's not only that He gave him a new mission, Not only that he gave him a reminder of his presence, the Lord provided Paul with protection. How is he going to get out of Jerusalem with that kind of mounting hostility? How will he get away from the Jews who sought so violently and zealously to take his life? As a matter of fact, they fast, they said, we will not eat or drink. Think of that kind of zeal. (laughs) How did Paul get out of that? And how did Paul... How could Paul get to Rome? Well, the Lord provided to Paul not just a new frontier, the Lord provided bodyguards. It's it's really ironic. It's really ironic how this whole thing is played out. Paul gets to leave the next night, leave out of Jerusalem, and look how he does it. 200 Roman soldiers, 70 horsemen, on horses. 200 spearmen. Please add to the math. Please do the math. That's 470 bodyguards. Paul would have never been able to pay for that on his own. The church in Jerusalem could never have made a a love offering and tried to raise money or resources or figure some ways of of protecting Paul. And yet, the Lord said, You must testify about me in Rome. I am making the Romans take you there. You will actually be led there by Roman resources. It's actually, it was paid by the Roman taxes. They pay for this trip. They pay for this escort. Paul could have never gone out of Jerusalem with this kind of high security and safety. Really, it's ironic. I mean, when you stay, take a look back and look at this whole thing, the Lord says a new mission field, a new reminder of my presence with you, and I'm, I'm getting the resources. I'm taking care of the resources to get you there. Yeah, you have to put up with the chains. I get that. But look at, who's, look at, look at how you're going to Rome. And not only that, there's also a letter written by the tribune of jerusalem that gave over oversight in jerusalem a letter commending and pleading for your innocence to the governor that was in caesarea friends only god can do that kind of stuff i mean we don't see in nowhere do we see that explicitly that it was god who did it work this way but just like in the book of esther all these coincidences even though god is not mentioned specifically orchestrating these details You cannot escape. You cannot escape the way God brings us together. And God ensures that his apostle will get to Rome on Roman resources. Amazing. Doesn't that encourage your faith? I mean, when God wants to do something, he can use a prisoner to take his gospel. He can use a person who's bound up to actually take him into the very heart of the Roman Empire. And God is using the Roman resources to get him there. Friends, are we asking the Lord to open up gospel opportunities for us? Are we ready? Are we ready to, to ask the Lord to use us in whatever gospel opportunities he has for us? But let me be very clear. The Lord can use and does these kind of things with people who are faithfully Committed to him and who have put their life on the line. Remember the attitude with which Paul went to Jerusalem? People in Caesarea. Paul's previous stop, last stop before Jerusalem was Caesarea. Remember the the content there? The debate there? The the, the believers in in Caesarea said, Paul, don't go. Look at all the trials. Look at all the the hardships that will come against you. Don't go. They're pleading with him not to go. Paul says, what are you doing to break my heart? I am ready not only to suffer for the name of the Lord, I am ready to give my life for him. He gets to Jerusalem. The events happen as they did. And now, from Jerusalem, where does he go back? Caesarea. God God is using and opening these kind of doors for his apostle because here's an apostle who has lived faithfully. He's lived his life in the sight of God in good conscience up to this present moment. Oh, friends, I want to continue to worship that kind of a God. I want, to, I, I want to remind you that kind of a God is worth putting our lives on the line for. So trust in the Lord's provision to accomplish our task, to accomplish his task. Let's take encouragement from how the Lord provides for Paul. No chains or threats can divert the Lord's plan for this apostle. It is the Lord who opens gospel opportunities even for a Roman prisoner. Friends, let's continue to live life faithfully to God, being willing to be used by the Lord, praying that God might give us opportunities to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I pray that we would continue to serve such a great God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you that you remind us, you remind us of what you're able to provide, even when your messengers, even when your children are enchained, suffering, even when you allow calamities and tragedies. Lord, thank you that you are a God who provides so amazingly. Lord, give strength to us that we might not be discouraged, that we might not be tempted to retrieve life to our own selves, that we might not be tempted to fight for our own protection, but that just like Paul, that our first and foremost priority would be to protect your gospel and the testimony about Jesus, even when things don't go well for us, even when things are, are tragic about our lives. Lord, would you help us live a life of faithfulness in your sight until the day you call us home? And Father, help us to, help us to trust in you, in your provisions, and trust in your, the doors that you open and are able to open so that your truth might go forth. Lord, use us, we pray. Lose us that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ might be taken to the ends of the earth, that this gospel might be taken to every citizen in Rollingwood, that uh, this gospel might be taken to every citizen and, 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 and a person in our neighborhoods, in the city of Austin. Lord, we pray, would you continue to open gospel opportunities for us as a congregation, for us as believers. Do great things, we pray, in the name of Christ. An encouraging word how awesome it is to open the Word of God, to be taught by Him, to have our hearts.